The psalmist declared at one point that this is the day that the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And certainly it's already been noted that we were blessed earlier to gather today and certainly by the, the great will of God, also another opportunity and we're thankful for the pre presence of each and every person tonight. And certainly as we have sung these songs and engaged in prayer to God, we've already been blessed immensely. And I hope that for the next few moments we can perhaps be even greater encouraged in faith in light of some of the questions that have been asked for tonight. I think we'll all be very encouraged as we look at some of the aspects of the answers that I've tried to present relative to these questions. As you've already noted, we shall consider another episode of our questions and answers. This is the 11th one this year, as you can tell by the title. Try to do that roughly once a month, and sure enough, as we come to this month of November, the, the 11th month, the 11th installment. There are more questions that I have yet to deal with, and so I suspect there will be one for the month of December as well, coming up here in, in just a few weeks. But as always, we will be reminded that the questions are such that each one of them has been offered by, by some of you. That is to say, I never ask any of my own questions, but rather, the idea is that whether in that box or maybe by direct asking of me or someone else who then conveys it to me, these are questions that have rested upon someone's mind, and I hope that they will be a blessing to each of us as we reflect on them too. The next question, or in fact the first question, reads like this one. Do the original scrolls from which the Bible was translated still exist? If so, where are they now? Fantastic question, isn't it? Those original autographs that, again, were written long, long ago, the, initial, the original ones that, in fact, were presented from the greatness of heaven, do they still exist? Tonight, as we kind of step through this first question, I have provided a few details, maybe a little bit more than what would otherwise be the case relative to some questions, but I do believe that some of the matters pertaining to this are incredibly important. So first of all, reflect with me for a moment on the Old Testament. Consisting of 39 books, approximately 32 writers, as nearly as we can tell, put together the actual nature in terms of the writing of those 32, or rather of those 39 books. Now as far as when they were written, Moses was the first writer. Malachi was the last one. As you can well tell on the slide, from around 1500 B.C. all the way to around 430 B.C. So as you can well tell, we're talking about somewhat over 1100 years, or at least approximately so. As far as the language in which that Old Testament was written, it was primarily Hebrew. There are some passages in Aramaic, but it was mostly, mostly Hebrew. To say all of that is to say, now look at the New Testament. That New Testament, again, eight writers, that one we know for sure, eight writers put together those 27 books by the inspiration of what was written. Around 50 years is the time span between them. Now, at that point, you can simply add together from the first writing, that which basically was of Moses, all the way into the last one, which is the book of Revelation. You can see approximately 1,600 years but all of that now <clears throat> returns us to the question, <clears throat> what about those original documents, those manuscripts, those scrolls? As you can see on the slide, they do not still exist. We don't have them anywhere. 
There's no library that contains them. There's no source or repository in which they have been housed over all these years. We just don't have them anymore. It's at this point that some would then say, how do you know the Bible is right? How do you know that it's in the Word of God if we don't have the originals anywhere? Here comes a great point in our faith tonight. How can we have confidence in the Bible if what I've just said is true? If we no longer have the original documents... And so for the next few moments, let's step through some of the aspects and features of this. And I might already point out that the next question, which we'll get to shortly, will build upon this. And thus, we'll look at both of them somewhat together. But the next thing on that slide is, go back in time with me to the original considerations. It would have been rather obvious pretty quickly that these original scrolls are going to wear out over time. And probably fairly quickly in time. It would be necessary to have some copies. It would be necessary to have duplicates, if you will. And thus, there were those who were skilled in doing this. Call them scribes. Call them copyists. Those who could laboriously write one letter after another, based on what the original had said, and simply make other copies of the Word of God. Now, to be sure, that would have been a very time-consuming matter. Some have estimated it would easily have taken one year for one scribe to make one copy. That's a long time. One scribe, one year for one copy. Again, that would certainly have been something very demanding and a great task to be sure, and we'll have more to say about that shortly. But now may I point this out to you. I just said the original autographs no longer exist. But I hope you'll be impressed that we have well over 5,000 fragments of the New Testament. 5,000 fragments in which some portion, sometimes lesser, sometimes more, but fragments which again can be compared one against another and therefore can produce a greater element of confidence in that which we do have. And therefore at the bottom of that slide, may I go ahead and say that the New Testament is by far the most authenticated document from the ancient world. May I say again, by far the New Testament is the most trustworthy and authenticated document from the ancient world. Now in a moment we'll look at some evidence that again allows us to make that statement. But for right now let's close that slide and simply make a brief element in comparison. There are a number of ancient writers which, in one way or another, are highly respected. In fact, sometimes our students and schools are invited to read and learn some of the writings of people like Plato and Socrates, Homer, Tacitus, Sophocles, and others. Now, our professors and our teachers often give great respect and great elements in, shall we say, elevated consideration to the writings of those men, which again were writings from so long ago. And the reason I now point that out is this. On this next slide, I've put together several pieces of evidence. And there are several columns of information provided. This will run to the next slide as well. But if I could, in fact, point out a few things reading left to right. In the leftmost column is an ancient author. 
Some of those I just talked about are in fact listed, like Plato and Pliny, Sophocles and others. In the very next column, you then have an estimate, sometimes rather well known admittedly, as to the time when that person's documents were written. In the next column, now we come to two interesting points. The next column is entitled, Earliest Copy. In other words, of all the writings which we now have, which one is the oldest one? Now, the oldest one would be the one closest back to the time when that person would have written it. And so, obviously, the older the document is, the greater, in general, one's confidence in that document can be. The next column now summarizes by saying, this is how many years existed between the time the person wrote it and the time that is our earliest copy. So look at the first one, Pliny. I'm sorry, Lucretius. Again, some emphasis given to him as a historian. And look, a thousand one hundred years elapsed between the time the man wrote and our earliest copy. So over a thousand years passed, we have no record now again, that's a long time, and therefore one might not have quite as much confidence in what we have now was really the writings of Lucretius because over a thousand years passed and we have no record. You can step down the list, but I would point out one last column. It points to you the number of copies of those persons' writings we have. Two copies of Lucretius is all we have. Now, I'll not look over all of them with you. You can see them for, for yourself. But I do hope that you'll readily observe that in all of those cases, sometimes 750 years between the time the person wrote and the time of the earliest copy. Sometimes it's 1,300 years, which again is a very long time. The next slide continues that discussion. And as you can well see here, we have, again, a few more. Let me point out Aristotle about the middle of the list. A very highly appreciated person. We do have 40 copies, or roughly 49 copies. But notice again, 1,400 years between the earliest copy we have and the time he wrote. Almost a millennium and a half. That's a long time. Let's get to the exciting part. Jump to the very last entry, the New Testament. Now, you and I know very well the names of the, of the people who wrote it, but look with me at this. Are you impressed? We have well over 5,700 copies, at least fragmentary copies. And yet, when you look less than 100 years between the oldest copies we have and the time the books were written. Not even a hundred years. Now, that again is impressive, far more impressive than these other writings because there wasn't much time. In fact, if we could go ahead and point out some of it, think about the Apostle John. John, from all the evidence we have, lived to be a fairly aged man. And when he wrote the Revelation... A very few years later, this comment was made. One of the most well-known writers from the time was Irenaeus. 
Irenaeus was the pupil of John. And therefore, Irenaeus himself could make reference to John who wrote the Revelation. And therefore, he could refer to the lifetime of the one who wrote it. That's so impressive. That again wasn't possible for any of these others when 750 years or perhaps even far more elapsed. Perhaps to summarize all of that, consider then the degree of authenticity and the degree of credibility that goes with the New Testament documents, for we have so many fragments that can be compared one against another. They can be studied in course and appreciated for that which they say. You, can have, you and I can have the greatest of confidence in the New Testament, in the Bible that we have. The God of heaven has seen fit in various ways to preserve it over the course of centuries, over the course of time, over the course of some great opposition to it. Now, one last thing that you might be a bit troubled by is the very last column when it comes to the New Testament. Ninety-nine and a half percent. Well, if you look back to the top, that's supposed to relate to accuracy. Could I point out this? The 99.5% in some ways is even a little bit of an underestimate. You and I could have the greatest of confidence because those fragments, sometimes due to the weathering of time, there's a bit of uncertainty in regard to one letter. One letter. And yet some other one may well have that taken care of, but yet matters like that are counted in this. I would point out there's no reason to have question or great doubt in terms of the bedrock of faith that the Bible provides. You and I can believe the Bible. Even though we do not have the original autograph still, we can absolutely believe it. Now as we go forward, perhaps a few more comments about this will in fact be, be this. I've invited you on this slide to again perhaps observe the time frame between when the person wrote and the earliest copy that we have. And the larger that number is, the less credibility in general can be had relative to that particular ancient writing. And with the Bible, we're less than 100 years. Now remember, the Revelation was written, as far as we can tell, about the end of the first century. That would mean we have fragments that can go all the way back, in many cases, to the very first part of the second century, and sometimes even the latter part of the first century. These fragments go right back, basically, to the time frame of the lives of those who wrote it. That's fascinating, and it's profound, and it's vital. Furthermore, might I invite you to consider this. That means the textual evidence for the New Testament is great indeed. Now again, over 5,700 fragmentary copies are known. As time passes, many more are typically found. I wouldn't be surprised if that number is considerably more than that by now. At this point, note some of the remaining matters on that slide. The question at least I ask, what about the original manuscripts? As I've already pointed out, we no longer have them, but one might ask, what are the oldest complete manuscripts we do have? I've listed them for you at the bottom of that slide. The first one is this, the well-known Vatican manuscript. As you can well tell, it dates to the 4th century. So in terms of years, that's the 300s. 
So in other words, it's only a couple of hundred years, a little bit more, from then back to the time when those actual documents were written. Now even then, that's still much less than the amount of time involved in those other writings to which I referred a moment ago. That Vatican manuscript, as you can see on the slide, the Catholic Church, perhaps as the name would suggest, is the one who is in control of it today. And I think it's rather sad to notice they've had possession of it for centuries. There was a long period of time when they would permit nobody to even see it. Even scholars who would have a desire to translate it into another language, they've refused. Isn't that sad? Tragic, quite frankly. But yet, that's the way it was. Look at the next one. May I invite you to also notice the one called the Sinaitic Manuscript. Now this one, as the name would suggest, is an actual manuscript that too dates from the 4th century, but it was one that was housed in a monastery. And I would suggest to you that, I wouldn't say accidentally, but by the providence of God, it was preserved. There was a time, as in fact history records it, when Tischendorf, who was a very well-known translator of biblical languages into modern languages, he happened to be visiting the monastery in that part of the world. And there were some old fragmentary copies that had been laid aside, ready to be thrown away. Tischendorf immediately recognized the value in it. He immediately saw in it something worth preserving. He salvaged as many of them as he could. <laughs> However, once they began to see him taking them and having such interest in them, they wouldn't give him the rest of them. Who knows what happened to all of them? Makes one wonder. Thankfully, some years later, he actually revisited the monastery and did uh, and was allowed to take possession of some others, whether that was all of them. I guess history will never know. At least at this point, what about the last one? The Alexandrian Manuscript. It dates from about, about a century, a little bit later in time, about the 5th century. It too, as the name would suggest, takes us back to the well-known city of Alexandria. The great library in Alexandria, Egypt, in the ancient world, it, of course, is known for that. I simply list all of them for you by closing that discussion like this. You'll notice most of my emphasis has been on the New Testament. You might wonder about the Old Testament. How much credibility can we have to it? For after all, it was written quite a bit before the New Testament was. How confident can we be in it? May I say quite confident for this reason. We pointed out that when the God of heaven gave those Old Testament scriptures... As we've already noted, there was an early understanding that duplicates of those were going to be necessary. It was going to be important to copy those scriptures. And therefore, from an early point, there was a group of Masoretes, and that's the way you pronounce it, these people took very seriously the copying of the Bible. So seriously did they take it that they devised a whole set of considerations that would permit them to faithfully copy the Holy Scriptures. I'll just point out a few things they used. 
they took the liberty to ensure that copies were, were credible and that they were accurate. They had a record of the number of times a given letter would occur in a book. They had a record according to what the middle letter of the book would be. They had a record about the number of other considerations, even in various patterns that would occur. And then, when it was completed, a laborious counting would take place. And if anything did not match, anything that did not match, that copy was destroyed. Now, I'll be quick to say there's a sense in which we no doubt would have a lot more copies of the Old Testament if they hadn't destroyed them. But their regard for the Word of God was so great that any mistake of any kind in any form, the entire document had to be destroyed. You couldn't rewrite it. You couldn't erase it. You couldn't redo it. You had to destroy it. And so elevated was their consideration that they wouldn't burn them. The Word of God's too precious for that. They would bury it in a perfectly and very specially prepared little receptacle, they would bury that copy of the Bible. These Masoretes were so skilled at that copying that you and I can well imagine that, of course, quite a number of them perhaps were employed in this work. But it became a very notable skill and a work of great importance. One additional thing I might point out, they, from an early recognition understood that since the Bible was written in Hebrew, those Old Testament Scriptures, and that given God's people, of course, had gone into other places to live, they understood from an early age that people would lose the capacity to pronounce the Hebrew words correctly. And therefore, they devised a phonetic system and thus they put vowel points in the Hebrew, and they put little symbols that would be a reminder of how to pronounce it. I would suggest over the course of time that was extraordinarily valuable to at least keep in mind how one should pronounce some of those words that we find in the Old Testament. Maybe one last thing would be this. In the year 1947, which really wasn't that long ago, there was a famous find in the Middle Eastern part of the world, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Let me point out briefly one of the things concerning the Old Testament that was found. You might recall that these shepherd boys, these Bedouin boys, they had thrown a rock into these caves and they heard something break. It was clear something was in there. Over the course of the next few months and years, investigation of caves all throughout that area found lots of ancient scrolls from communities, Jewish communities that had resided there. Among the things that were in those scrolls were some historical books that detail some of the features of the Roman Empire, and that's important in its own right, but not nearly so as these. Books of the Bible were found that dated a thousand years earlier than what copies we had at that time. A thousand years earlier. And the thing that's most remarkable is when you compared the Dead Sea Scrolls to the copies that then were due to the work of the Masoretes, they were virtually identical. We can trust the Old Testament as well as the New and what a great consideration and faith in one can have in light of the preserved character of that Word of God throughout the ages and throughout the periods of time in which it has been brought down to you and me.
With that said, what about question number two? That second question reads like this. How many books are contained in these scrolls? So back to the same question. In those original books, those scrolls, how many books of the Bible were there? And then it goes on to ask, how did man decide which ones of these should be in the Bible? Isn't that an interesting question? So let's develop a few considerations relative to that one. First of all, we might begin by pointing out that those Bible writers, they understood that they were writing Scripture. It's not as if they were simply copying something down without the knowledge of what it was. Didn't David say in 2 Samuel 23, 2, "...the Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His word was in my tongue." David understood then that that which he was asserting and declaring was the Word of God. Didn't God Himself tell Jeremiah, I have put my words in your mouth. But then later He told Jeremiah, write down what that which you have prophesied. So putting those two things together, what Jeremiah wrote is what God had delivered or revealed to him. Same was true of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 3 verses 3 and 4. And the same was true of John in Revelation 1, verse 11. John, what you see, write in a book. But yet, in Revelation 1, 1, John had been given by the Lord Jesus Himself, that which you and I would call the Revelation. Thus, those writers knew that then that which they were writing was inspired Scripture. They knew that. And so on that slide, the question now returns to this. So we know the Old Testament, for example, contains 39 individual books as we would call them. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and all the way on to Zechariah and Malachi. The New Testament, 27 books. Matthew is the first in our, in our Bibles, and Revelation is the last one. But if you had the opportunity to look at a Hebrew Bible, for example, I suspect none of us can read Hebrew, but if you ever have a chance to look at one and you look at care at the way in which that Old Testament is presented, there are not 39 books in it. So that might well make one wonder. So have men added some things to this Bible that were never in the original one? What about that? And in the New Testament, is something like that also true? In case you're interested, the Hebrew Bible will have 22 Old Testament books. Not 39 but 22. Now what is this in regard to 22? Should we have cause for concern? Absolutely not. It's just that the Hebrews cataloged the 39 books differently than you and I do. And in fact, to help you see the distinction, I've listed for you the 22 books in a Hebrew Old Testament. It begins by observing five books of Moses. Now, those are distinct. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and that which we call Deuteronomy, that's five. Also, the book of Joshua, that makes six. And then, now Judges and Ruth are combined. The Hebrews tailored those as one book, whereas we would call them two, but to them it was one. But it's the same text that you and I appreciate as two. And that same kind of thing happens in many other examples. We have two books of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, they had one. Both books were simply combined into one. Same thing with Kings and the same thing with Chronicles. It's at this point you might take note that in our Bible, Chronicles exactly follows Kings. 
Did you already notice? Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew Bible. You might take note of that, for that in fact answers one of the most oft-raised, supposed contradictions in all the New Testament. It's the place of where they had chronicles. Notice again, it falls at the end. But returning to that list, Ezra and Nehemiah are grouped as one. Esther and Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes all remain separate. But beyond that, the Song of Solomon, again being separate, is followed by Isaiah by itself, and then Lamentations is combined with Jeremiah. Ezekiel and Daniel are both separate. But then, all twelve of the minor prophets, as we would call them, are arranged in one book. So Hosea to Malachi is one book in in the Hebrew Bible. If you count all of them, you get 22. But it's the same books you and I call 39. I would think again, that's very comforting, and it's very encouraging. With that in mind, look even further. When were those books understood to be Scripture? Did man make the decision to combine them into what we would call the Bible? I would offer that we should be a bit cautious of saying it that way. It's true that men, of course, put it down to the actual course of writing. But who made the determination to assemble them into a particular singular presentation of the Word of God? I would say we should remember that those rabbis and those well-known prophets of the Old Testament, men like Ezra, Nehemiah 8, directly says that Ezra opened the book of the law and read from it. Now Ezra thus had appreciated the fact, even by Ezra's day, those books that were then in existence had already been understood to be Scripture. They had already appreciated the fact that these were the words of God. Men didn't just arbitrarily choose what books to to, to, to select and what ones not. Maybe one last thing would be, to make a brief observation about Josephus. Now, I realize Josephus was not inspired. He was a well-documented historian, but he was a careful student of the ways of life of Judaism. And even he regarded the fact that Ezra had determined by his day books that were to be included and respected as the Word of God. That was not something that some arbitrary council of men chose to set forth. All of that having been said, I believe you could also note this. Josephus put it like this. There was no book added to the regarded Scriptures after the days of Artaxerxes. Now you might ask, who is that? He was a king recognized in the days consistent with time shortly after the time of Daniel. Now if that be so, Oh, what a great deal of regard you and I can have for the Old Testament Scriptures just as surely as the New. Now at that point, having looked at some of those things, why don't we now turn our attention to a continuation on that particular slide as we turn to the next one. It's a bit of a development along this line. From an early time, there were some books that were to be questioned. In other words, these were books that did not have the hallmark character of what was regarded as inspired Scripture. To this day, you can still find them and read them. 
If you have any Catholic Bibles, that is to say a Bible that makes a recourse in some way to a Catholic in authorship, it will likely have a set of books called the Apocrypha. Now, that's supposedly a set of books. It may well occur between Malachi and Matthew. Those books are not inspired. They might have some interesting history in them, and they might offer some help in terms of appreciating some things, but they're not inspired, like the 39 Old Testament books and the 27 New. However, there are some who still regard them so highly that you may encounter them at least in some translations of the Bible. I've included about the middle of that slide some particular references to the most ancient Old Testament manuscripts that we do have. The Cairo Codex and the Leningrad Codex, both of which are in various museums around the world. But maybe one last thing before we leave this question completely. I hope we can see that we can have the greatest of confidence in both the Old and New Testaments as we have them. And I would suggest we, as we noted this morning, could be so thankful that we have this kind of faith-building evidence. May we never allow someone to say, well, the Bible is just some book, as if it's no better than the writings of Pliny or the writings of Tacitus or Sophocles. This book, again, is far more evidenced than any of those ever will be. We can trust in the Old Testament and the New alike. Question number three. This third question reads like this. How are we to respond when Romans 10.13 is given as all that is needed for salvation? So the person has asked a very interesting question. Apparently in conversation, and it's very easy to happen, someone may well reply, that, well, verses like Romans 10, 13 read like this, Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So all I've got to do, some might be quick to say, is to in some way verbally make a pronouncement of my belief in the Lord, and doesn't that verse say I'll be saved? Well, maybe in conversation and in discussion, we have found ourselves in that predicament. And so this person has asked a question, how would we respond in a case like that? What might we be able to say to help the person understand that that might be such that it involves more? Well, look at some of these things. Wouldn't we be quick to say, what does that verse actually say? Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I think we'd all readily agree that the Bible is its own best commentary. So what does the next verse go on to help us understand? We would all agree that whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But now, by the inspired writer who wrote that verse, that same person wrote the next one. And it reads like this. How shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on Him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So may I be quick to say that calling on the name of the Lord is quickly defined to include the following. First, one has to believe something. Now, it's clear that one can't believe what one has never heard about. And one can't believe what one has never been presented with. Then he says, in addition to belief, you've got to hear something. You can't hear just any arbitrary message. Because notice there's reference to a preacher. 
Some person who, by study and knowledge and skill and appreciation, has been equipped with the capability and capacity of presenting information consistent with what's necessary to call on the name of the Lord. I would simply offer that might be a first way to begin. So calling on the Lord, in addition to just some quick statement of belief, clearly it involves a specific belief of a message from a preacher. Well, maybe that might be at least some words that might help to continue a conversation that might include some of these next things. I've already listed on the slide that that next verse does speak a great deal in helpfulness. But I would say that that verse alone does mention calling on the name of the Lord. Maybe it would be useful to refer to, to, to Matthew seven twenty one at this point. You see, calling on the name of the Lord clearly cannot mean simply wording or saying the name of Jesus. Because Jesus said it like this in Matthew seven twenty one: Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. For many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. I suspect that if that verse hasn't been read before by the, by the individual, that it probably will cause a bit of disturbance. Because perhaps they have been under the illusion, well, if I just call on the name of the Lord, I'll be saved. But now here suddenly Jesus is saying, I cannot merely do that. Because here are people who had done it. They had done works in His name. They had even cast out demons in His name, and yet they still were lost. I suspect, again, a conversation might be able to pursue more things. They might begin to ask other questions now. They might have other matters they would wish to discuss. On the bottom of that slide, perhaps it could include this. I have tailored it in the following way. I wonder what the word call, C-A-L-L, means as the Bible writers used it. Which well, for sure, it can be used in the sense to give something or someone a name. That happened in, for instance, Acts 4.36. You and I remember that they gave Barnabas a name, the son of encouragement. So that they gave a name to him by which he was often called from that time forward. Well, that doesn't seem to be what the word it means in that text of Romans 10.13. But you'll notice that same word means to adore, to, uh, to, to invoke. It means to worship. The sensibility that goes with that usage of it is something that likely will be very vital. So the person that calls on the name of the Lord, meaning to engage in those things whereby one invokes the proper recognition of the authority of God, of the Lord, and implants that into life. Whatever way accomplishes that must be that which Paul is specifying. It's at this point... May I direct you to Acts 22.16. How do I call on the name of the Lord? This is the way Paul described it. How do I call on the name of the Lord? This is how an inspired writer termed it. You may remember when Ananias came to, to, to Saul, 
This is what he said. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. How did Saul call on the name of the Lord? He said he did it in baptism. That's what Paul said about himself. As he recounted his own conversion, as he recounted that moment when Ananias shared with him what was necessary, he said, I called on the Lord in doing this. May I suggest, calling on the name of the Lord includes baptism. Now that may be something that the modern denominational world would wish to avoid, but at least in the Word of God, that's included. As you and I close that slide, could we not then say that looking at Romans 10 verse 14 and coupling that with some of these additional verses might well be a fruitful conversation as one talks with a person interested in understanding better Romans 10 verse 13. Those are our three questions for tonight. As we close this lesson with a particular slide of conclusion, maybe we can give a very brief recognition of this. Most of our lesson tonight was based on the Word of God in the sense that we looked at the ancient autographs and we gave some attention to the fact that though we don't have them, oh, how wonderful it is we can believe this book. It is what God revealed and we can have confidence in it. Tonight, it might well be that someone in this assembly upon examination of life, has come to realize that all is not like you would wish it to be. As a wayward child of God, wouldn't you like to come home? To come back to have a life based upon this. The writings of men will rise and fall, come and go, they will wane away. But this book shall stand forever, just as we noted this morning. 1 Peter 1.25 continues to say, "...the word of the Lord endureth forever." You and I can now in part see why, because it is what God revealed. And we can now trust in light of archaeological discoveries and in light of the manuscript evidence we have that the Bible is that wonderful, that time-tested and all-believable Word of God. Tonight, if your life isn't in harmony with it, if it isn't consistent with it, why not allow the power of the blood of Christ to make it so? If you would wish to become a Christian tonight, that would require that you believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If, upon the knowledge of that truth, you have wandered away from it, come back tonight to your first love and re-express your conviction and your dedication to the trustworthy Word of God and live in harmony with it. If you do that, Revelation will say to you, you can come over and live with Jesus forever. That's quite a promise, isn't it? Tonight, we'd be delighted to make assistance to anyone who might wish to let it be known what we could do for you. And we'd like to stand in just a moment and sing this song of encouragement. If at this point, someone would wish to allow us to offer assistance and help, won't you come while together we stand and sing?